1: Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast, I'm Ollie Mann. On the show this week, as audiences return to TV studios, we ask why some productions are keeping it virtual, long-term. Bauer unveiled their subscription package for niche radio stations, but is it the future for big national brands? Also on the programme, we react to the Noel Clarke allegations and ask what media companies can do to provide safe spaces. Plus, do we all deserve a four-day working week? And in the Media Quiz, I'll simply ask why. Why? It's all to come in this edition of The Media Podcast. And joining me today to discuss all the goings on in Media Land, we have making his media podcast debut, Jake Warren of podcast company Message Heard. Uh, Hello, Jake. Welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, Tell us a bit about yourself. Um, You started at Vice, I believe.
3: I worked as a reporter and a producer and my... my sort of specialization when I wanted to try and sound smart was extremities of human interest. Really what that meant is I got to go around the world and hang around with nutters.
1: Yeah, uh, clickbait, that sounds like.
3: nutters seemed to like me, so I don't know what that says about me. And And then ended up doing some stuff with the BBC radio and then kind of, yeah, eventually made it into full-time podcasting by setting up Message Heard three and a half years ago.
1: So your own startup, which makes a bunch of shows. And you mentioned the BBC, actually. You were in a, a New York Times article recently, which was a sort of profile on British podcasting, but for an American audience was all about kind of the outsized influence of the BBC in UK audio. How do you feel about their moves recently with BBC Sounds and all the rest of it? Would you look for a commission from them? Or do you think they are disruptive to, to what you and other indies are trying to do?
3: Well uh it's an interesting one because when i started message heard a lot of people said to me you can't create a business that exists outside of the bbc so you know the way that production companies make money is feast to famine depending upon how many you know commissions they are you know given by the bbc and i kind of said well actually i think that's a load of bollocks and i wanted to create a successful business that actually was completely outside of the bbc ecosystem now after three and a half years i think i'm not too conceited in saying, I think we've done that. But also I'm at the stage now where it's like, yeah, I'd work with the BBC. And indeed, I'm I'm actually, you know, looking to do some stuff with them at the moment. But I think the BBC in BBC Sounds is sort of reflective of the BBC at large as they do some stuff amazingly where they're really pushing the needle forward. A lot of stuff in the middle and also a fair amount of crap is probably my, uh, my honest assessment of it.
1: Alongside Jake, we welcome back in her first appearance since 2017, uh, back when this show was at the Edinburgh TV Festival and I was briefly Rick Edwards, uh, CEO of TV Indie Nine Lives Media, Kat Lewis. Hi, Kat.
2: Hi. Hello, Ollie. Thanks for having me.
1: Hi. Uh, Now, you've been uh, celebrating a big anniversary for Media City this week.
2: Yes, that's right. It's 10 years, which is um, amazing. That's 10 years since the BBC staff started moving in and Doc 10 got off the ground, who are the facility house that provide um, the studios there.
1: Looking back on it now, do you feel like, because you're obviously very keen on the whole development and, and how it's helped the industry up there, do you feel that Media City itself now feels like part of Salford? Because I did used to get that sense going there and working there five, six, seven years ago that locals kind of felt this Canary Wharf-like business zone had been dropped into their city. It wasn't really part of Salford.
2: I know what you mean. It has a kind of American feel, but if you think back to when those docks were kind of working, and obviously, you know, it was an extraordinary story how Manchester and Salford decided to bring the sea, you know, all the way from Birkenhead into their cities so that they could benefit from bypassing Liverpool and the the, the docks in Liverpool no longer got all the money that they used to charge for imports and exports. So that's the story behind it. And it's one that's always fascinated me because I think it sums up the... um the spirit really of of Manchester and Salford people, that they will make things happen. There had to be three or four petitions to Parliament. And in the end, hundreds of thousands of people came out in the street to get the Manchester Ship Canal built. And this is really the new iteration of of that spirit, which is still very much there within the people. So this is um, a huge creative and digital hub that employs 7,000 people. It's one of the most successful regeneration projects in the whole of Europe. And there's about 70 new digital and creative businesses, and they're literally opening all the time, which is fantastic.
1: I guess what I'm getting at is, do you still think there's any sense that there was in the opening days of, this is for them media wankers up from London?
2: I don't know, more and more local people are being employed, and for us, you know, when we take people on at Nine Lives Media, because we are based there, We're always looking for for local people, because the problem with employing people who just come in or come up from London is that they don't stay. So when we're training people to have a kind of long career with us, which is what we always want, we really need people that are based in the Northwest. And it's so important for our country that there are voices from all around the country and that there are ways into the industry All around the country.
1: Well, talking of voices all around the country, also joining us today is uh, I don't think it's a stretch to call him Media Podcast Royalty, broadcast consultant Paul Robinson. And Paul, I gather you are back in the presenting saddle. Tell me about Retro Sound Radio.
0: Oh, I'm doing a few bits and pieces here and there, yes. So this, oh, um, it's nothing, it's just a
1: side hustle. Yes. It's just a don't be, so don't embarrass
0: me. By talking well, it, about is, it, it is, to be honest, I do it at six o'clock in the morning because uh, that way I can then be ready, have my breakfast, start work at nine and do, the, uh, do all the other less interesting stuff at nine. So, so Retro Sound's a new um, station for South Wales uh, and it started um, about 10 days ago, something a couple of shows for them at the weekend. But, uh, you know, I tell you, can I, can I say there's something else that's much more important to talk about on this podcast. And that is, Kat, if you don't mind, can I tell the story?
2: Yeah, you can.
0: Kat and I first met many years ago. You were, I think, a teenager then, if I may say so. And Kat used to co-present a programme on Radio Tees called Hubble Bubble, a kids' show that was two till four, Sunday afternoons, with Ian Hughes. And I think for a while I followed you doing the top 40, didn't I? So I did the top 40 after Hubble Bubble, four till seven. And so you did that for, what, three or four years, I think, on Radio Tees?
2: Yeah, that's right, three years pre University.
0: But it's so lovely to see you again.
2: (laughs) It's great to see you too.
0: Ah,
1: I was hoping for some gossip there rather than just a friendly reunion but anyway good I'm glad that you know each other and have worked together but the thing about voices from around the country that I wanted to ask you Paul was you know as you say this new radio station serves South East Wales particularly and they've said they want to be involved in the local community and events and there's even plans for an old school action desk in the style of local radio but but you're not in South East Wales. How does that work? No,
0: no. Look, mo- Most of the programmes are from South East Wales. I'm not. Um, they've got a few extra people like me who I think they think can add something who are not local. Um, and look, we all know that. Look, I-, I worked at Radio Tees. I'm not local to side. I worked at Mercia Sound. I'm not local to the Midlands. It's about being part of what matters editorially to that area, not necessarily where you're broadcasting from. Yeah, and that's
1: interesting, isn't it? That they obviously feel that there is a commercial gap there. It's not a community radio station, this, is it? It is a commercial radio station. They feel that there's a gap for people who don't want to listen to the nationally broadcast stations that don't editorially reflect South East Wales.
0: Well, I think there's quite a gap in the sense that people are mourning the loss of Red Dragon and Real Radio that were local stations, and we think that's the gap that can be filled. And look, Capital and Heart and all those stations are fantastic, but there's very little local content. This will be 24 hours a day, determined you know for the market designed for the market whereas if you listen to those stations it's one show a day so i think there is a real demand for really old-fashioned style local radio and in that sense you know being reunited with uh, cat today is absolutely right because that's what radio tees did so successfully um and i think it's really using that old ilr model and making it modern for today but really a lot of those um those lessons that were learnt in those early days of commercial radio, just um, not forgetting they're still relevant today. Still
1: relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, before we move on to the official agenda then, I suppose i better, better clarify, Jake, for the record, have you ever worked on any regional radio stations with Paul Robinson?
3: Sadly, what it sounds like, I haven't, but uh, I've been missing
1: <laughs> out. Well, you can reminisce on a future edition of the show when we reunite you. Um, all right, let's talk about the news and studios first. TV studios will be reopening to audiences next week with Have I Got News For You, Thank God, and The Jonathan Ross Show finally getting a proper live audience back again, then sitcoms, including The Goes Wrong Show and others. Cat, Nine Lives produces Songs of Praise, uh, which obviously isn't a studio show, but, you know, the church with a very small congregation is a very different environment, isn't it? Do you know when you'll be welcoming people back to that?
2: We're certainly hoping that we're going to be able to record congregational singing again in the autumn, but it has been a big loss. What we've done is we've worked with choirs um, all distance, three metres because of them singing, um, you know, as well as kind of soloists. And we've done as much as we can. We've kept the show on air. Um, what's fantastic is our ratings have actually increased 30 percent um, during this whole period. So so that's really good. And we've got a huge library of hymns so so that's helped
1: does it make a difference though to the show yeah i mean i mean i suppose it's slightly different with that show because obviously a it's such an upbeat show and b if people are going through tough times it's the kind of show they might turn to but you know when you watch something like have i got news for you and there is no audience it really falls flat some of it doesn't it are there bits of songs of praise where you're thinking i just really can't wait to actually do this properly
2: well the way we've always worked um, since we won the tender in 2017, is that we've always um, used the hymn library. So we have a very, a very, you know, specific precinct every week, but we've always had a hymn library and we always kind of fit the hymns into the content. So for probably when you were young and you were watching Songs of Praise, it came from one particular church and there were hymns all from that particular church but that format changed quite a while ago and certainly since we've inherited it. So in that sense, I think the audience hopefully hasn't missed out um, because we've always kind of chosen the appropriate hymns and many of them are still congregational. Some of them are from modern choirs that are that are linked more closely with the precinct. But we can't wait to be recording new music, you know, and that's going to happen kind of congregational music um, late, later this year.
1: But it's also just been a lesson, hasn't it, Paul, the last year in in... Like you were just saying about the values of old school local radio, there are values in having a live studio audience, you know, which possibly were taken for granted by a whole generation, particularly in comedy because of single camera comedy and the prevalence of that. But some formats, they really fall flat without that live audience.
0: Yeah, if you're a performer, you know, you do need some feedback. And, uh, you know, you talk to people who were, you know, the old school variety acts, and then they start doing television, and they're they're talking to a camera, and there's no feedback. They found that very, very hard. Like anyone who has to talk in front of an audience, uh, if you've got someone to talk to, and you've got response and feedback, it's always better. It's true in radio, too, or television, too, isn't it? If there's an interactive audience there, you can use that to make that program more relevant, more salient, more connected to the audience. So, you know, it's an old thing it's it's still true you know COVID-19 or not
1: and Jake obviously in podcasting you know it's a completely different thing it's a very intimate thing you can literally do it one-on-one with just you and a mic and someone else remotely through zoom or whatever and then compile everything in an edit but have there been things that you've missed doing I mean just the simple thing of getting lots of people in an intimate setting to talk to each other has been difficult hasn't it
3: no I think look the functionality of Zoom is obviously the next best thing, but actually it doesn't quite compare as, you know, sort of being able to be in a nice studio and sort of looking into the whites of the eyes of someone that you're talking to, right? There's more of an intimacy, there's more of a sort of uh, an energy and, you know, you can kind of, I think it tends to lead to a better end product, but of course there's masterful things of deceit and manipulation that you can do in any edit. So, and we've been doing a lot of those, of course, but um, the ability, I think, to... You know, to, to do more in-person stuff, you know, which is now starting to happen, is fantastic.
1: I do wonder as well, Kat, whether there's just something about a kind of connection with the public, which, I mean, it shouldn't matter, should it? When, especially when an audience is just sitting there and clapping and laughing and not really getting involved. But, I don't know, you know, like you were saying earlier about Media City being in Salford and spreading across the country and getting local communities more involved, actually just having the public in the building creates a different environment, maybe anchors the product a little bit more in real people and their lives.
2: The show that I noticed it most on was Graham Norton, actually. Mm. I think it was just so flat and he was obviously struggling without that interaction because he's so brilliant at working with the audience. But it's really interesting that Have I Got News For You is going to keep its virtual audience as well as having a studio audience. And I think that's fantastic because it gives options for people from all over the world to, to take part. And they've obviously... You know, benefited from that and a feeling that they want to kind of keep that as well as having the studio audience, which I think is positive.
1: All right, let's talk about subscription now because, uh, I mean, that's very much one of the watchwords of the moment as we've covered uh, week after week. But uh, Bauer have released a paid for subscription package for their radio brands. Uh, for £3.99 a month, you can now get an ad free version of Scala, Planet Rock, Kerrang Radio and Jazz FM. I'd be fascinated to know if anyone does all four of those, <laughs> whose taste spreads that diversely. Um, and you get the ability
0: to skip six songs an hour. Uh, Paul, can you see this working? Well, I can see it working for services which are niche and which you've got a very sort of close affinity with the music, particularly if it is something like heavy rock or classical uh, or jazz. Uh, whether you'll pay that amount of money to avoid adverts, I don't know. It's it's sort of... Um, From a business point of view, it's fantastic, because if you can actually get a recurring revenue, a revenue every month from subscription, It's a fantastic business model. You haven't got to have sales teams going out and selling. So the critical question question is going to be, I guess, um, how much are they going to have to spend to get subscribers? You know, the whole thing is about what's the lifetime value of that customer? How long are they going to subscribe to? Because I assume there's no long-term contract, so you can churn out at any point, any month at a time. How much will it cost them to acquire that customer? And then what will the ratio be of the lifetime value of the customer against that cost of acquisition? And I think that's where they're going to struggle because building the customer base is not going to be easy. So um, as a business, if they can make it work, it'll be fantastic. And also the business scales beautifully because you know the costs of radio are pretty much fixed. You know, Once they've covered all the technical costs, it's pretty much gonna be you know, money going straight to the bottom line. I don't know whether the proposition is strong enough at that price point. I think the price is a bit high. Um, we did some work a while ago uh, with Netflix and Disney Plus just looking at how consumers regard value for money against the cost. And Netflix is definitely the one to watch because they're the ones who determine the market value. The reason Disney came in at a substantial discount to Netflix was because they realised that people think that Netflix is amazing value for money. In fact, they probably ascribe more value to Netflix than perhaps they should for the price point. So to me, 3 99 sounds too expensive. I think uh, the revenue maximising price is probably less than that.
1: Just delineate for us briefly why you think it's a good idea for the niche brands and not for the others. Then, so I mean, it makes sense. You said for for classic rock, why doesn't it make sense for Absolute and Kiss and Magic? Do you think Bell will extend it to those brands or not?
0: Well, because I think those services are in a way not as differentiated. There's so many services. I mean, look, is Magic very different to um, Smooth, for example? Not really. You know, they play back to back music. There's not much presenter interaction. Uh, and they're playing very similar records. I think this is a bit like the old magazine business. You know, if you can segment in the magazine business and you can have something that's on those shelves that's differentiated and different, you know, if you're into um, trains, there are four different railway magazines. I know nothing about trains, but apparently there's different segments in the train market, and people will pay for that. So if you can offer something that's special, people feel passionate about, I think they might pay for it. For a mainstream service, I can't see it. You're nodding, Jake. There are some comparisons, aren't there, with running
1: a network of podcasts here.
3: I mean I was nodding at the four different train magazines that are serving me so much joy but um uh, yes there are comparisons right and I think the I guess I guess the principle is that you should pay for something right and whether you're paying with your actual money or with your time via listening to adverts if you can cater both of those at the same time and it works you know for one particular audience they want to give you money and for another particular audience they they'll happily sit through the adverts well okay great to have options
1: the thing is though cat you know audio fans are already shelling out via patreon and audible which many people subscribe to They're about to be asked to pay up via Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well to their favourite shows that are going to launch subscriptions. Do you think people have enough money remaining for good old radio? I mean, you can get radio for free. It's very clearly marketed to us that way.
2: I think it's a really interesting one. I think that if I was running a kind of commercial radio station, I think, as Paul says, it would have to be a very specific type of music. And what you'd want to do is build a kind of a real club feel around it. So go for a kind of 360 where you've got you're offering kind of a lot on social as well. And that's probably going to be the future uh, of the likes of Facebook, isn't it? I would have thought that you know people are basically um, tuning in to something they really like, interacting with other people who really like it too. I would certainly pay $3.99 for Classic FM without adverts, but I think that's partly because the advertising strategy can actually be editorially led and some radio stations get the adverts really right and i was listening um this week i think it was smooth and i just found the adverts really informative and interesting the kind of combination of adverts that they had Whereas very often I just get bored and I just think, yeah, I would definitely pay.
1: Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it, Paul? Katz mentioned two global brands there. Obviously, Globally will be looking at this move from Bauer and Katz has given two very different bits of feedback. (laughs) You're ballsing up the ads on Classic FM. I'd pay to avoid them, but I love the stuff on Smooth. What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to compete with Bauer and launch their own product? Or do you think they'll stick to advertising, which is their huge driver?
0: Well, I think Kat makes a really good point, and that is if the advertising matches the mood of the radio station, then your uh, sense of irritation goes down massively. And um, it's always been a challenge in radio. We talked about this 20, 30 years ago and people still aren't getting it right. Some are and some are not. And when you get that jarring advert, particularly if you just build an emotional connection with a piece of music and then suddenly comes on that destroys that mood. It is very irritating indeed. Um, I don't know whether Global will go down this route. I suspect everyone will be looking at Bauer and seeing whether they're successful. I can't see Global rushing into this straight away, given that their whole business anyway is an advertising business, given they've now got the outdoor business and so on. You know, Global have got more muscle in the advertising market, uh, they've got more distribution in the advertising market. I think they'll carry on uh, supporting the advertising clients and leveraging those relationships across all of their brands.
1: And just finally on this, Jake, do you think there's a problem with kind of telling the audience that the ads are something that should be skipped? Um, you know, it makes sense, doesn't it? If someone's going to give you three, four or five pounds to skip the ads, that's more than they're worth as an individual digit on your spreadsheet. But the message is, don't listen to the ads. You know, that's not really the content. And that runs counter to everything about commercial radio, which is trying to envelop the ads into the content.
3: Yeah, that's it it. It does feel quite counterintuitive and I guess that's part of the difference between the offering between podcast and commercial radio, right, is that I tend to find the typical radio spot ad largely to be pretty inane and annoying and distractive from kind of my my enjoyment of it, whereas actually with podcasting, with it being more moving towards, you know, sort of uh host red advertising that's in keeping with the style content tone of the of the show is a little bit less user disruptive so i think people know you know radio spot ads just dropped in you know can be annoying so actually you know i know it does feel a bit counterintuitive i agree saying actually look just bung us a couple of quid and you don't have to listen to this nonsense so i it's interesting and 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 i don't know what the right answer is
1: who will decide how our story is told? Oh, oh, what oh, swagger oh. he had? What style? Oh, no, <laughs> grim. 1770 was grim but it's better now. Who will be there to record, in uncomfortable detail, the curious moments in history that should never be forgotten? Well, the fact that he had a painting depicting her with five breasts in his office that he occasionally threw darts at. I
2: mean, that doesn't seem <laughs> like the yeah, sort a of weird. thing that you naturally do because you hate somebody.
1: <laughs> now we have the answer. And their names will be celebrated in every country on every weekday except some bank holidays. The speedboat was piloted by a womble. Look at this and marvel, I murmured to Johnny Walker. You will never see anything like this again. They are Ollie, Rebecca, and Arian, otherwise known as the Retrospectors. Wherever you get your podcast. Let's talk about Noel Clarke. News broke last week that the actor and director had been accused of a number of instances of sexual assault. Uh, Sky and ITV paused production of the shows that he featured in. BAFTA withdrew his Lifetime Achievement Award. The BBC is looking into historic allegations from the set of Doctor Who. Uh, Jake, this is all a bit of a mess. What are the sorts of questions that broadcasters and production companies need to be asking themselves now?
3: Well, it's a good question. And and I I don't know if I have... Uh, a succinct and fantastic answer for you but it certainly feels like whereas historically this stuff was kept discreet and sort of you know known within circles that this person behaves like this and you know is 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 pretty shocking that clearly more due diligence has to be done in terms of the people that you're willing to work with you know sort of enrich and enliven their star and push them to the front of your productions actually you know it's a pretty uh common mantra is it but just don't be a bastard you know don't 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 be one of those people so i think it, it, it's probably around due diligence is the thing that i would talk about it and historically as well right you know actually you know you, you need to do that proper work as to who who you're going to work with and why
1: but we're talking about talent here aren't we cat and that's the interesting part of this for so many people listening who work in so many different parts of the industry it's all very well saying oh you need a stronger hr team you need to look into what kind of people you're working with you need to have a reporting process and all the rest of it But when it comes to talent, the on-screen talent, it's often just commissioners who don't even know the person saying they want a particular talent and they don't ask about their behaviour on purpose because they don't want to know. How can you avoid anything about that?
2: I think what's really important is to empower your staff um, and the presenters you work with to know what the boundaries are and that, you know they have to show everybody respect at work. So um, if you've got a respect at work policy that everybody knows, that's kind of perhaps based on um, the industry standard, you know, the BBC have got a really good respect at work policy. Um, And then, you know, a whistleblower system as well is really helpful. Or some people are talking about perhaps having somebody on a production who's in charge of safeguarding much in the way that, you know, we've got COVID supervisors at the moment, perhaps there should always be somebody who's got that safeguarding role, production manager or whoever. But I think it's just really important that women, particularly young women, because it is an issue that affects mostly young women, are empowered, A, to know what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable, and B, to just be able to put their hand up without feeling that their job is at risk. Because the classic situation, and obviously this has been going on for decades, and it's really sad to find it still going on so much in the industry. Um, is that you know a young woman who turns down somebody's advances then loses their job, and it's a freelance business, and you know, people are considered very often in, in a very wrong way to be dispensable and replaceable. And this kind of practice has just got
1: to stop. I suppose the reassuring thing, Paul, is that we are talking about it because lots of women did come forward. And actually, the the environment has changed, hasn't it? We're talking about things that happened not years and years ago, but a few years ago.
0: Yes, I mean, I was shocked about this and and shocked it's still going on after all of the um, disclosures there were, you know, around Savile and so on around that time. I was really surprised and surprised at how many people have come forward. And the irony, of course, they came forward once he was seen on stage accepting the BAFTA. Um, I I think what Kat said is completely right. I think what Jake said is completely right. The other thing I think that's interesting about this guy is he was obviously very good at managing the situation because he presented himself as being a very considerate, decent person. You know, he tweeted, you know, be good, be kind, be respectful. He gave this outward impression of being someone who really was a good guy and was, was treating people in the way they should be treated. And yet he was obviously behaving so badly Badly. The thing I can't understand is given the number of cases, why it took so long to come to fruition, why it came to be recognised. I thought this has happened over a number of years, and I'm surprised it wasn't picked up earlier. So I, I do think uh, there's a need for more uh, due diligence. It's very difficult, but you know, you've got to somehow not allow people to behave like this in plain sight. Um, and I mean, I was shocked, for example, the stories about the explicit sex scenes where he was writing these sex scenes and then asking um, co-stars to take clothes off. Now, I mean, that's so blatant and I'm amazed that wasn't picked up. So I think there has been some um lack of due care here, but I think you know what Kat was talking about going forward needs to be implemented with, you know, a great deal of resource and commitment from chief executives right through all of the editorial stuff.
3: I, I was just going to chime in with was saying that I think with this particular case with Noel Clark, it's, you know, obviously there's been a culture for so long, you know, since the dawn of time that big stars equal sometimes being nasty people. But actually, what I think it's also indicative of is that the marquee talent, the star, has also got more and more power behind the scenes now. So he's a writer, he's a director, he has his own production company. He's involved in every facet of a production, which means that not only would you be on the big silver screen next to him, but he's also the conduit to your opportunity to be there, which gives him a lot more power to then in turn abuse.
1: I suppose as well, Kat, it's about other people on the set with that kind of power, recognizing the power they have. I think in particular with actors, there's um, almost a kind of endemic uh, self-depreciation where, you know, oh, I'm just here to do the lines, you know, I'll mess about on set. Whereas actually you are powerful there because you're on screen against most of the people that are behind the scenes.
2: In my experience, when it gets really dangerous is when people have power, but no responsibility. And and that's when it becomes really, really difficult. I think what Jake said and, and, and Paul as well, but is absolutely right. I think that... When we have people that are running their own production companies, they're kind of doing every job. What's even more important is that those respect at work guidelines are kind of it it becomes an absolute must that they're rolled out to everybody at the beginning of a production. And that there is somewhere that people can very quickly make a complaint because that's going to change everybody's behavior on that particular production you know in a heartbeat and it just should be standard practice
1: well i mean hopefully the embarrassment at least that noel clark's been through would be enough to put off some people from doing anything similar right now uh, let's talk about social media now because the audio first app clubhouse has finally launched on android uh, in the u.s anyway after over a year of being solely on apple's iphones uh, jake you run a regular clubhouse session for podcasters uh, I still haven't been bothered to go in. Someone did send me an invite. I just can't. I just don't, there's just too much content for my ears out there. Uh, have you noticed a spike though of people joining through Android?
3: Well, I have to say, I I I do, but it's almost like I did. Now is is the right. honest answer? The I, moments passed. I, the mo- for me, is it over? Mo-
1: <sighs> <laughs> it, it, I'm glad I didn't bother trying it. Yeah, it's <laughs>
3: look. Is it? I think as a as a concept, it's great, but I think it also as much as I didn't want it to be I think it is a fad but Clubhouse specific and that's just because I think they got the premise right but the execution wrong and I was um, I don't want to say I was an early adopter but you know I, I was on there maybe a couple of months before a few different people you know before perhaps more people joined and, you know, even the data shows, I think it was February, there was 9 million new users. In March, it was sort of 4 million. And then, you know, you're getting towards April and suddenly it's 900K. And, you know, it launched Android the other day to basically no fanfare, which is really interesting. You know, all of the Twitter spaces and, you know, Spotify buying locker room and, you know, it, they've kind of, their moment in the sun where they had a bit of runway has gone. And I think they kind of fluffed it by, the the way that it was basically just people pyramid selling. I mean, that was basically what it is. It was like sieving for gold, right? I created a, a club along with uh, uh, someone else who works in the industry at a similar company because you know, all of the podcast and audio specific stuff was all, you know, it was done in America, right? And they sneeze, we catch a cold, they're always further ahead. So I was getting very tired at trying to stay up at 1am to listen to people that I wanted to hear talk or contribute. So we thought, okay, we need a UK European one. So we set it up and, you know, look, there's like 5,000 people in that club. And, you know, there's still rooms ongoing in it, but it feels the, the, you know, the excitement has gone from it, because it's just, you have no way of curating it yourself in terms of what you see and what's presented to you. So ultimately, you can't cut the wheat from the chaff, and there's a lot more chaff than there is wheat.
1: Well, also, it makes sense, Kat, as a business for Clubhouse and for Spotify and Facebook and whoever wants to imitate them to own all of that real estate with all of that conversation. But I've always wondered whether it really makes sense for individual contributors. You know, I've been invited a couple of times to participate in people's Clubhouse. Of course, there's no fee, but there's also no audience. I mean, it's... It's one thing to do something promotionally if you think people are actually going to be listening to it. But I mean, you sort of think of they what's the business model for the it's all relying on people's goodwill, basically.
2: I mean, I've I've been invited, but like you, I haven't I haven't actually joined in. So um it's probably not something that I can talk about a great deal. But what I would say is that um the one thing that I would say is I think there is something in the concept of getting together with other like-minded people as we were talking about before and I would see it as more of a kind of spin-off from something like Classic FM where you actually are enabling you know the fans of that particular channel to get together and talk about it you know perhaps curated you know perhaps you know after particular events but I think that that's the there is a kind of a concept there that's good, which is people wanting to talk to other like minded people. But that whole kind of idea of just it being absolutely open and there being no clear kind of way as as you say, Jacob, separating the wheat from the chaff is just everybody's too busy, aren't they? I
1: suppose One thing, Paul, maybe that it did have I'm talking past tense now, does have I'm following Jake's lead uh, is that it does have less of a sort of nerdy, quite male-dominated stigma around it than perhaps other fan forums do. I'm thinking of things like, I mean, in this industry, something like Digital Spy or Reddit, you know, they, they reek of kind of young men basically (laughs) whereas I mean it did seem to me like Clumhouse was quite open theoretically anyway if you get past the exclusivity of the invitation.
0: Yeah no I I agree but uh, I think really everything's been said at the end of the day uh, its proposition just wasn't strong enough executionally it was very weak Um, I think it was um, staying invitation only to try and give this sort of sense of exclusivity but ultimately you know we're all time constrained and I got invited once uh, didn't really find it very rewarding haven't bothered since turn down all subsequent invitations. I just don't think its proposition is strong enough to draw us away from other means of communicating with people.
1: Okay, Vice Media Group is being lobbied hard to become the first newsroom in the UK to allow a four-day working week with no reduction in pay. Um, Jake, this is your old stomping ground, isn't it, Vice? We were talking about that. Can you see it working?
3: In theory, I could see it working because you know if you trust talented journalists and content creators... To create create great stuff, and it should be based around deliverables rather than you know what's your productivity sitting at your laptop all the time you know vice, and I don't know because I haven't worked there for a long time and and indeed worked mainly out of um with the American offices rather than the London one, but it was very much a culture of you know if you get up to leave your desk before seven p m people are looking at you like oh you're brave, mm. you know it's it they deserve it. Um, for one reason alone, and that is my greatest vice anecdote, which I will give to you, which is when I was leaving the office one time in the UK, you know, it's in, in Shoreditch. It was, I was walking out the sort of lobby area and it was me and just a temporary security guard, you know, someone who didn't know who anyone was. He was just there doing, uh, you know, doing his job. And the CEO and founder of Vice, Shane Smith, was walking into the building as I was walking out. So I held held open the door Um, And he looked me in the eyes and he looked the security guard in the eyes and he threw his hands in the air and he said, daddy's home. (laughs) And to be honest with you, I walked out of that building and, you know, Vice deserve whatever they, whoever works there deserves whatever they can get after experiencing something like that. I think it's, uh, I think, look, a four-day working week makes sense if you if you as long as you can ensure the quality of your output and and great stories and they
1: have some amazing people that work there and they do do some great work so i don't see why it wouldn't work paul you've done a lot of consultation um i don't know if you say daddy's home when you turn up but is this something that you recommend when you work with media companies
0: Uh, i don't say daddy's home i say granddad's here um I think Uncle, it's surely Uncle Paul. Uncle Paul, there you go. Thank you. That's very <laughs> kind. Um, I, I think there's two points here, isn't there? One is, can the business operate and do what it wants to do? And I'm a little bit sceptical about whether pre-planning will enable you to be effectively having editorial staff working four days, not five days or seven days. I don't know how that's quite gonna work. So I think there's the issue about whether it works for the company. But I mean, just thinking about the other side of this, the argument as to why you might do this to your staff, you know, if it's gonna help with stress, it's gonna help with mental health, um, that's obviously very good and something you should be encouraging. But I just wonder, I mean, you know, I think if you're working four days, not five, your inbox and your email is gonna be even worse when you come in, you know, you're gonna be more stressed. I, I tend to do email on Sunday night just so I don't don't get stressed on Monday because I have two days not doing email. Um, when you're away from, for three days, you know getting back into it is a lot harder. I'm not sure whether it's going to work for people either because I suspect what will happen is if you're doing a four-day week, you're still going to be bothered on the fifth day or bothered on the weekend because there'll be something that will come along. Now, and the other point is if it works for Vice, that may be great and if it works for Vice, fine. But I'm not sure it's going to work for lots of businesses, particularly media businesses, particularly when they're operational uh, and they're delivering content or they're delivering a service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I, I'm not sure whether four days is even the right thing for the employees how would you feel about it in nine lives cat
2: well i'm really pro people being able to work part-time and and the example that i give is my friend Neil butler who created come dine with me which is one of the most successful tv formats on a two-day week um, and, and and she always says that it was because she had her kind of you know her mind kind of open and free and and feet in the real world as well as kind of in in a kind of television environment, because I think if you're creating, it can be incredibly helpful to, to be able to work part time. Um, but obviously it has to work financially with my CEO head on, you know, um, the idea of like, oh yeah, everybody's going to do four days a week, but we're going to pay them the same. So everybody's getting a, you know, a big wage rise. And I don't know whether that will work. But, you know, in in my business, if people want to work part-time, they can work part-time. And that's the way that I've set it up from the start.
1: I wonder whether it will affect the unionisation of journalists as well, Jake, because some employers will look at VICE's staff who were only unionised back in 2019 and think, well, this is exactly why we don't want to encourage a union in our workplace. You know, they said they wanted certain things. Now they're asking for something else.
3: Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's tough. And, you know, my... Colleagues who may well be listening to this, I'm sure, will be banging on my door, going, "Well, let's have the four-day week then." You know, but um, I think it's it's. It, but you know, further to what sort of Paul was saying, it's there's the administrative issues of not having enough time to deal with things, but then there's also the creative issues, right? And that is that you know, as a union but also as a, both as an employee and an employer, you know, you need to have the time, the bandwidth, the headspace to think about creative things. And if you're doing something that is a month-long project rather than just a Tuesday from 8 to 4 p.m. project, actually maybe having that little bit more time independently will give you the, you know, the greater headspace and and the greater conditions in order to do your job better. If you do your job better, you're going to get a better end product, which is going to make your employer more happy. So, you know, you can make many different arguments for and against it. I th- I I think it's something that deserves to be experimented with.
1: And Kat, I'm curious about, you know, what you were saying in terms of people's mental health and people's being rooted in the real world before they come back into work being a positive, obviously. I wonder if what Paul mentioned about kind of being always on electronically is actually more crucial now to whether or not it's a four-day week or a five-day week or a part-time schedule. Would you encourage your staff to just turn off their messaging apps in the evening? Because, you know, your personal mobile phone number and the WhatsApp associated with it and the Slack associated with it, that can keep pinging all night long, can't it, even if you've got a day off?
2: I actually have in all our contracts that if you receive an email, um, unless it's an urgent matter in relation to production, in which case it should be marked as such, you know, you're not expected to answer it. And I think that's really important. I think people need to be able to switch off. And as an employer, you have to encourage your staff to switch off it is really important for productivity as well as for their mental health
1: the problem is how do you know absolutely sure that it is or isn't an urgent email without reading it and scanning it first and then your brain's immediately taken to that place isn't
2: it i think it's the person the people that send it i think i think generally there should be a culture where people don't carry on sending emails all all through the night and you know and and we all know some people do do that but i think generally as an employer you can encourage people not to do that because it's it, it, it's not a great thing to do unless it is really urgent. So I, th- mm. I suppose know.
1: it's about scheduling people's conveniences, isn't it, Paul? Because you sort of don't want to tell the person who's ordered their life and is very happy sending off WhatsApp messages at 11 p.m. because that's when they're you know, in a very fertile brain space. You want to tell that person not to do that if it's helping them achieve things. But you've also got to be very clear to the person receiving it. They don't have to respond. <laughs>
0: yeah i mean there are people you work with who uh, you know they go down their to-do list and they check up all the emails or whatsapp messages and then they think all right i've done all that i can cross it off now i'm free i can i can switch off but of course that creates a problem down the line for somebody else the other issue of course is we're now working you know in a global world you know and i i'm in in the morning you know i'm doing my stuff to asia in the afternoon I'm doing my stuff to America, you know, uh, and holidays are different, you know. Uh, I always pray for Thanksgiving, because that means there's nothing from America on that day, you know, that Thursday's always quiet. Um, You know, we are in a global 24 hours business. So I think it's, I think what Kat said is right. It's how do you tell when it's important? And if you're a producer or anybody involved in the business, and there's something really urgent, you'd want to know and you'd want to deal with it. If it's not urgent, it can wait till Monday morning. And I think it's about making sure you flag that. If it is urgent, you know, I think everyone's okay about being disturbed occasionally if it's urgent, but not on a regular, recurring basis.
1: Okay, talking about uh, a pay-related issue at BBC News now, presenters there are being paid big money by businesses to host events, according to a recent report by The Guardian, which we kind of knew, Paul, didn't we? Because this is a fix, isn't it? We know about it because there was a fuss in the past about presenters and now they have to declare it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we're talking about people like Andrew Marr and Justin Webb. Andrew Marr earns the rather eye-watering salary of £360,000 a year. I mean, to me, there's three main points here. First of all, what does the BBC contracts say and what are they allowed to do? It seems to me that doing work on BBC premises in BBC Time for third parties when you're paid extra money is probably taking the mickey a little bit. I know it's more difficult in the COVID-19 environment. Yeah, so let's I, just be specific about that
1: example. So it was Andrew Marr, wasn't it? It was screen grabbed by The Guardian. Yes, Andrew Marr. Earning Marl. five grand for, was it a bank or something, some city thing, and he was wearing his lanyard sitting in what was clearly a BBC meeting room. You do just kind of think, God, just go across the road to the hotel pay 200 quid for a room do it there
0: <laughs> well there are places you could go to and i think to do it from the bbc offices so blatantly is really wrong um uh, it's Bruin dolphin who are our wealth management company but my point about that is my worry is not so much that. I think that's probably just a bit indiscreet and a bit naughty. But what happens if there's a major story with Bruin Dolphin? Say, for example, there's a major scam about wealth management. Maybe some you know uh, stars have had their uh, money, um, they've been ill-advised about their wealth, and there's been some sort of news story. Um, and then Andrew Marr has to actually interview someone. He's completely compromised in that situation. So to me, it's about risk management. My worry about this with BBC News is, if these presenters are talking to all these outside companies and then those companies come into the news what happens you can't possibly have Andrew Marr handing that interview and if you've got all your presenters all doing different things managing that and 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 deciding who does what story becomes completely unmanageable so I think that's the issue it's more about reputation and trust of BBC news anchors and the risk they may be compromised uh, as a result of a future story that they're not aware of at the time they undertake the project
1: And of course, we we should stress that uh, Paul's example is purely hypothetical, in case uh, Bruin Dolphin's lawyers are listening. Uh, But Kat, everyone's compromised by something, aren't they? I mean, there are certain kind of conflicts of interest that you kind of have to declare. You know, oh, I used to be the, the president of the Young Conservatives or whatever. But I mean, actually, you know, you might have your mortgage with NatWest and then be reporting on NatWest. You might have shares in a company and not declare that. I mean, at what point do we just trust journalists to do their job?
2: I think what Paul said is right. And I think the difficulty is that if you're hosting an event, then that's taking a public position with that particular company that many people witness and is probably all over social media as well. So I think it is a compromise. I think these people are paid a lot of money and that the integrity of BBC News particularly, but also other news channels, um, it's incredibly important and therefore it should be in their contract that they're not allowed to do it and certainly in our presenters contracts that um you know for the programs that we make particularly with the BBC we do have clauses so that any commercial opportunities need to be need to be talked about to make sure that they don't compromise the programs that that person is associated with however i think with the news it's about you know really it, it, it the integrity of BBC news is something that's of fundamental importance, you know, to us all within the country. It really is. I
0: I agree with that because I think there's a difference here between, you know, Graham Norton, say, or someone on a commercial channel. The BBC is public money paid for by the license fee. And I think her expectation is to have an impartial quality news service which i think is central to what the bbc is about I think the news is really you know at the heart of what we want the bbc to do apart from all the other things um, and i think we need to know we can trust those people and they're beyond reproach and i think this puts it at risk and that's the problem would you make that same distinction
1: jake because one of the things that's really come into criticism is is uh, specialist presenters hosting events that are about their specialism. So Spencer Kelly from Click, for example, presenting a seminar for Cisco. But then equally, it would sort of be bizarre to say to a tech company, who are you going to get for your conference where you can't have the best known or second best known tech journalist in the country because he works for the BBC? I mean, that is his specialism, he does know what he's talking about. That's what they're paying for. And it's also what viewers trust. Well,
3: I think, first of all, I enjoyed the story because I've often thought to myself, if I had a pound for every Zoom call I had ever done, how much would it be? And now I know it's exactly what Andrew Marr gets paid to do one. So <laughs> uh, I enjoyed that. But uh, no, look, I think, you know, with, like Kat and Paul said, if you work for the BBC, it's it's not a bad gig. Look, getting 360 grand a year from our pockets is a pretty good deal in most people's eyes and i think that actually you know you can't have your cake and eat it and the fact is that if you agree to work for the bbc you are also agreeing that you are being funded by your listeners or by your watchers, the people that pay and therefore there has to be a commercial consequence to that and that is in the same way that mps are not supposed to right you should not be doing side hustles side gigs in order to you know uh to make as much money as you can because you've accepted you are working for the BBC so I look I I, I, well hold on but
1: the terms that you've accepted you're working for the BBC on might not be the same as Andrew Mars I mean I present a show for the BBC I could not live on the salary I get for presenting a show for Radio 4 I mean I actually couldn't so but it's not a news program so do you make that distinction then it's just like if you're a freelancer it's different if it's not news it's different should the BBC be paying me more yes please
3: well, so if you're a freelancer, of course it is, you, you you know, you're free to do whatever you want. I think that there has to be, an, and, and, and I was putting it in simplified terms, right? Um, but I'm talking about if you're a big and marquee name, and that sounds like I'm being disrespectful to you and your BBC Radio 4 show, which I'm not intending <laughs> to be. But, it's you know, funny. I think that there's, like you said, there has to be context and the nuance to it, right? Which is that if you are working in something which is, you know, investigative or news reporting or something like that, where there could, easily be a conflict of interest somewhere down the line, then there has to be some sort of uh, parameters at which you go, actually, if you're one of the marquee names and you're being paid a shed load of money by the general public, you can't just um, do things which feel slightly disingenuous or off. All right.
1: Let's uh, move on to talk about ITV, where things are looking up. They told the market this week that they expect a bounce in ad revenues up to 90% year on year for June as the Euro football championships finally get underway. Paul, 90% is, I mean, it would normally be incredible, obviously, but it does, well, does it say more about how dire last year was, really, rather than how great the bounce back is?
0: well be careful 90% of what you know 90% of nothing is still not very much so you've got to be very (laughs) careful with percentages Um, I was reminded actually going back to the launch of Channel 5 if you remember Channel 5 and Dawn Airy, who was the original um, uh, controller of Channel 5 the three F's Fs, right and this is two of the F's isn't it effectively Um, (laughs) and these two F's are going to save ITV so I thought that was quite interesting so Um, that's Love Island uh, yes I'm making Love Island one of the the F's and and, and and the sport being the other F yes. yes there's obviously no movies involved, uh, films. Um, Look, I mean, advertising tends to be a barometer of the economy, and if we believe all the figures we're seeing, it looks like the economy is going to bounce back quite quickly. Certainly the data we've had so far has been pretty encouraging. If the economy bounces back and people are back out doing things, and I expect next week's going to be very, very busy with everyone able to go and uh, eat inside and and, and go to pubs and bars and and, and, uh, cinemas and theatres opening, um, I suspect that's going to encourage brands to come back. If you look at what's happened over the last few months, it's the brands that have been, ab- been absent from, from TV advertising. And they're all going to come back now because consumers are ready to spend. And I've also seen some very interesting research which suggests that there's this pent up spend. People want to go out and spend. They're going to probably spend more than they would have done otherwise. So it's not surprising ITV is going to do very well. I suspect ITV will get back to where it was uh, fairly quickly. Uh, and I'm not hugely surprised by this.
1: Have you seen a resurgence in brands working with you as well, Jake? Because branded podcasting is part of what you do, isn't it? Do they have money saved up for advertising that they haven't been spending?
3: They do. Uh, And, you know, podcasting has been one of those industries which has not been a victim to the pandemic, right? It's boomed and it's accelerated and we've experienced that as a business. And I think, you know, part and parcel of that is, you know, we've done things to adapt from it the the event, the conference, you know, the the sort of marquee thing in person hasn't existed for the last year and a bit. And actually, like most people, if you're a CMO or a, you know a head of brand partnerships or something like that, you get to the end of the financial year, and if you haven't spent your budget, okay, well we know how much to deduct from next year's budget, right? So people are trying to be innovative and clever of and and, and how they do it. And a podcast is a pretty good way for a brand to do something in a coronavirus world that still is adding value to what their you know their mission statement what they're trying to do so i've actually experienced it's been it's been pretty good going but of course that is at the expense of more traditional events and 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 such and such
1: well exactly something's always at the expense of something else isn't it cat and you wonder for itv which is actually quite a broad business you know yes people are going to be watching the brit awards last week wasn't it european football the olympics i know that's bbc but nonetheless there's lots of live events going on that plays into itv and advertising live but then you'd think they're going to be losing some of their box set audience, some of their online audience. They've got BritBox to worry about. You know, the online viewing buried in these statistics has started to dip. So is this really such great news for ITV? Are they just taking the audience and putting them somewhere else?
2: I think for all our PSVs, you know, it's... The kind of audience that they get through having the prominent position that they're given, you know, and have had traditionally is is what's most important. That's my understanding anyway. I'm not an expert in commercial television. But what I do know is that whenever there is a recession and those, um, you know, the advertising spend gets hit and those commercial channels suffer, then we all suffer. You know, so it's just fantastic news for the whole sector that advertising revenues are going up.
1: Okay, All of which brings us to the highlight of any edition of the show, the Media Quiz. Uh, This week, it is entitled, Why? Just, why? I will share three things that have happened this week, and you just explain why they're of note. Uh, Now, I don't think Rick Edwards did this, Kat, so let me explain how it works. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, uh, Paul, you will say? Paul. Kat, you will say? Kat. And Jake, you will say? Jake. It's best of three, so let's play... Why? Here's story number one. Why did Kath Viner travel to Manchester on the 5th of May? Kat. Jake. Ooh. Kat got in there first. Cat.
2: For the 200th anniversary of The Guardian. So she's Correct. the current editor and they unveiled a plaque on Cross Street.
1: Absolutely right. Uh, here's story number two. Tell me why did the BBC censor an Australian Paul. episode of RuPaul's Drag Race? Paul.
0: Uh, this is uh, to do with Anita Wiglet, who was one of the uh, drag queens. <laughs> said with such authority. Who, Anita Wiglet, and it's um, a thing called The Snatch Game, which we call Blankety Blank. And she did an impersonation of Queen Elizabeth II, and she made some comments about Prince Andrew, and the BBC uh, believed that they were going to be offensive, so they had them edited for the UK version. It's an Australian version of RuPaul's Drag Race.
1: OK, well, here is question number three. Why... Is the world of Alan Partridge slowly turning into reality? Cat. Cat.
2: Because there's a new um, DAB radio licence being given to... what could become the real Radio
1: Norwich. <laughs> close enough. He was so close. North Norfolk Digital. Oh, yes, sorry. North, <laughs> radio <laughs> Norwich is, of course, his uh, previous place of employment. Uh, yes, a real North Norfolk Digital is coming to Norfolk, according to Ofcom's latest announcements of new radio services, which means you've won the quiz, cat.
2: Wow, that's amazing. That's a first.
1: Yeah, so relaxed about it, but you did it, made it through. Um, Jake, that was a, a poor performance, but it was your debut.
3: Yeah, apologies.
1: Um, I'm just talking about the quiz not generally it was just, you're very welcome to have you on the show uh, have you been watching Alan Partridge the latest
2: series yes I have um, I love I love Steve Coogan he actually um, started his TV career on a show I used to produce it was called Up Front presented by Anthony Wilson and he was the comic in the middle he used to do a funny turn in the middle of this Friday night kind of crazy debate and um, and Carolina Hearn was the other the other wow. comics they've both done so amazingly well but no I, I, in
1: character I, or not not as stand-ups in character really?
2: uh, they used to do different characters so yeah. caroline Hearn developed mrs merton on the show mm. and um and uh, yeah steve did 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 lots of different characters but then developed I, I always think alan partridge is based on on richard you know from richard and judy this morning richard mainly That's, yeah
1: that seems to be it's becoming more evident yeah. and explicit, i would say <laughs>
2: Because <laughs> he was there, of course, at the time, uh, Granada. But no, in terms of the show, I'm not 100% sure, but I know loads of people love Alan Partridge, but I, I've watched it and I just, I'm not I'm not 100% sure. What do you guys think?
3: Uh, don't get me wrong, love Alan Partridge, grew up with Alan Partridge and, and even enjoyed the, the new stuff. The films, mm, slightly less so, but the greatest thing that Alan Partridge has contributed to society, in my humble opinion, is the Twitter handle Accidental Partridge, which oh, is been on that a couple of oh times. that is heaven <laughs> you know when someone some politician tweets the most partridge-esque thing and they just quote tweet it with accidental partridge god i i love that it's Illiberate.
1: impossible to do a local radio poll on twitter without sounding like accidental partridge as you'll learn paul if you haven't already
0: <laughs> oh, we don't <laughs> do show. we don't do that on retro sound but hubble bubble <laughs> maybe
1: <laughs> uh, well we'll have to go back through the archive and discover that for ourselves but that is it for our show today my thanks to Cat Lewis, Paul Robinson and Jake Warren. Uh, the Media Podcast is totally independent so if you can afford to do so why not bung us the price of a coffee if you have enjoyed the show but you know, like an expensive coffee that you'd order through a posh app. Uh, and of course, follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on your podcast app of choice. You can subscribe at podfollow.com/slash the media podcast. I've been Ollie Man, the producers Matt Hill and Peter Price. It was a rethink audio and BPM production. We'll see you in a fortnight.